Today's Animal Spirits Talk Your Book is brought to you by Alternative Fund Advisors. Go to alternativefundadvisors.com to learn about the AFA Private Credit Fund. That's alternativefundadvisors.com. Welcome to Animal Spirits, a show about markets, life, and investing. Join Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson as they talk about what they're reading, writing, and watching. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to Animal Spirits with Michael and Ben. This was an interesting discussion. We haven't had anybody from the private credit space on the show before, so Marco was generous enough to take us to school and we spent, I don't know, the first 20 or so minutes of this conversation talking about these markets, where they came from, where the where the returns come from. And Private credit is still a relatively new asset it is. class. It is. And to the extent that there is a premium over what you can get in publicly traded credit, bonds, I think the way that he explained this is pretty simple. There's no, there's no free lunch anywhere, uh, obviously. Um, but this, the, the premium comes from just sourcing, just making these loans, right? Like the, the lender's sort of acting as, as a bank. Right. And a lot of it, a lot of these loans are made outside of the banking system because the bank can't make those loans anymore, which is it's funny to hear him. I was asking who the winners and losers are. And he's like, the banks are. They probably, they would love to make these loans if they could, but they really can't anymore because of capital requirements or loan requirements, all these things that, that came out of the 2008 crisis. It was my understanding, and I use those words very loosely because I don't know anything about regulation, that banks weren't these making these loans anymore because they couldn't. But it sounds like banks aren't making these loans anymore, not because they're not allowed to, but because of capital requirements. Is that your understanding as well? I think so, yes. It, it sounds like yeah, a lot of it is regular. And this is, like, one, there's a lot of unintended consequences that came out of the Great Depression that were like this too, like the, that banks couldn't do certain things and it was supposed to protect them at the time or protect consumers. I think this is an interesting one that, it seems like these lending platforms and private equity shops essentially are the ones that are benefiting from it because they were able to make this market. Is private credit the new private equity? Probably. I mean, it's it's a lot, probably a lot, especially for advisors and family offices and even like institutional investors. It's easy to understand. You don't have as long of a lead time. If we're talking loans that are three to four years in length or whatever, that's easier to stomach than I think than like a 10 to 12 year private equity lockup, right? So, yeah, it, it's an interesting space. So we had Marco Hanigan, who is uh, one of the founding principals at Alternative Fund Advisors. So here is our conversation with Marco. We're joined today by Marco Hanig. Marco is a managing and founding principal and the CEO at Alternative Fund Advisors. Marco, welcome to the show. Hi, Michael. Glad to be here. We're going to be talking today about private credit and I think that people, investors, have heard the term private equity for a long time. The idea of investing in privately held companies is not that novel, but the other side of it, the credit side of it, is perhaps a little bit uh, newer and less familiar to investors, but the, the popularity has certainly exploded in recent years. L- maybe let's start with, what is private credit? Well, uh, private credit in essence, is any kind of loan that is not a bond, so not publicly traded, and uh, not issued by a bank. 
So there's now a large infrastructure and, and network of private lenders, sometimes also called alternative lenders, let uh, lend money to typically middle market uh, or smaller companies, and they are direct loans. And if you're investing in private credit, you're basically giving money directly to a borrower. And just to cover all the basics here, who are these lenders? Where do they come from? Because it seems like it's a relatively new side of the business that was sort of sprung out of the 2008 crisis and all the regulations that came from that. Yeah, so the big driver of why there's interest and why there's been demand for, for private credit is that banks have stepped away from lending due to increased regulations, more requirements on, on their balance sheets. The lenders, uh, they, they range from large names that you might have heard of, like uh, you know Apollo, KKR, Carlyle, uh, a lot of large uh, names that, that you're familiar with also from the private equity space. Uh, they will raise funds to help lend, uh, lend money to, uh, to these companies. Uh, but there are also many smaller platforms. So the fund that we uh, we run, actually, we use lending originators that play in very specialized niches, things like lending based on mining interests, litigation finance, which are loans to law firms. They are very specialized. And these are little ecosystems of firms that have an ongoing client base. They understand that market very well and um, can serve the needs of those borrowers. So you said that banks used to be the primary issuers of these loans. Were banks making these loans from like balance sheet capital? Were, were they pooling the, the money of outside investors and then making these loans? How did, what was, what was the ecosystem like before these private credit companies filled the void? Yeah, banking um, is, is pretty straightforward, right? You have deposits. And you pay close to nothing on uh, on your deposits, and then you are allowed to lend based on on those deposits. That's banking in its uh, in a nutshell. And the real challenge for banks has been on the deposit side. You know, you recently saw with SVB Bank concerns about does a bank have enough deposits to uh, support its uh, its asset base? But there's a deposit that's the liability, and then the asset is the uh, uh, the loan itself. Um, the way that these private credit funds work is that the investor simply invests in a fund. So that's where the money is coming from. Think of that as the equivalent of a deposit. And then it is being lent out at a rate and you get that return directly. So if the loan is originated at, I don't know, it's a, say it's a 12% loan, the manager in the fund might take out several percent of that and you're, you earn whatever is left over. So it's a very different model than the banking system. I guess just said differently. So banks in 2023 are still, they're still making loans. They're just not making loans to this segment of the marketplace. Uh, and I guess maybe a good starting point is, is, is why. This was a regulatory shift that no longer allowed banks to make loans to which type of companies are we talking about? It's a question of both size and type of loan. So banks are still lending. There's no question that banks are still making loans, uh, but the requirements on, you know, on their balance sheet and the regulatory capital ratios that they need to maintain is such that many of those loans are no longer economical for them. For example, think of a credit line. Suppose that you're somebody who wants to have a credit line that you draw on uh, periodically. If you get charged by the bank regulator almost as much in capital requirement as if the loan was made 
permanently, it's no longer economic for you, right? You're earning money on a small balance, but you have a large credit line out there. So those are the kinds of reasons that have led banks to step away from certain segments of the market. Now, the investment grade segment of the market, large com companies continue to issue regular bonds in the, uh, in the public markets, right? Then there are also large, large borrowers that borrow from banks and those large loans get syndicated. That market still exists. It's really the lower end of the market where there's less and less desire by banks to lend. Before we get into the investment implications, we surely want to do that. Who is benefiting from this change and who was hurt by this change? Because obviously there have to be winners and losers from, from this new market developing. Yeah, the, the benefit is to borrowers that can now do things uh, that continue to have access to credit, right? Uh, in many cases for them, it's the difference between being able to get uh, loans or not get loans at all, right? And getting them faster. So the borrowers are definitely better off by having a new channel that provides them with, with loans. Uh, the people that are hurt are, are banks, quite honestly. And then the big benefit, of course, is to the investors, because if you invest um, in a bank and you're giving the bank your deposits, you're not making very much in terms of interest on that. But if you are really lending doing a private loan, you are earning rates that are in the you know, high single digits, low double digits. So it's really the investors that really have benefited from being able to make these loans directly. What's the difference between a loan and a bond? Are they the same thing with different names or are there substantial differences between the two? Bond, by definition, is just something that's publicly traded. So, I mean, there's a whole process, an underwriting, an underwriting process. But bond, once it's issued, you know, it gets traded, you can buy it uh, and it can, can get bought and sold. A loan, once you've made that loan, there is no market for it. So it is issued and, you know, it's then on your books until the loan gets paid back. When you say that, you said earlier that these are for lower players. I can't remember the exact words that you use, but do you mean, you mean lower like as in smaller or lower as in lower credit quality or both? They can be both. So um, these, these are firms that, would, that might be, you know, call them double B, B, you know, credits from a credit worthiness. And some of them can be large. Uh, and some of them can be small. So there, there is a wide spectrum. And in some cases, at the very large end of the market, some of those companies are also thinking about, is this something that I should be issuing in the public market or through one of these syndicated loans uh, or from a private lender? So that end of the market is actually quite competitive and heavily competed. The more you go into smaller and smaller loan sizes, the less competed. The more. Marco, how did, how did you end up getting into this space? What's your background here? Yeah, so uh, my background is I've been in the funds business for my entire career, uh, first with a company called William Blair and Company in, in Chicago, and then with a company called AQR Capital, which is a large quantitative uh, hedge fund in uh, Greenwich, Connecticut. And uh, at AQR, uh, I was fortunate to be responsible for launching their mutual funds business. And really, we created what became known as the liquid alternatives business. The idea of having hedge fund strategies in a mutual fund format was pretty novel at the time. Towards the end of my tenure at AQR, I started to realize that we were doing liquid alternative strategies, but there was increasing interest in illiquid or private strategies, things like private equity, but also private credit, private real estate, and asset classes that you cannot just access by buying bonds or stocks. 
There was another innovation that happened at the same time, which was interval funds, which make it much more easy for advisors to access these vehicles. Traditionally, private credit, uh, in order to invest in private credit, you would invest with the manager through a limited partnership. And it would be a fund that would have a typical structure of maybe a three-year duration, four-year duration. You invest in the fund. The fund would call your capital, invest it over time, and then would give it back to you at the at the tail end. It'd be a subscription document. It'd be a uh, you know a K one uh, investment. Interval funds, in contrast, basically look, taste, and smell just like a regular mutual fund. So they have a ticker. They don't have a subscription document. They have a ten ninety nine. Um, you can typically invest in them on a, on a daily basis. There's one important difference, though, versus a mutual fund. You can only get out your money quarterly, and there's a limitation on how much of the fund's assets can be redeemed at that time. So it's a 5% limitation every quarter. If only if the total redemption requests in that quarter add up to 3%, then everybody gets 100% of their money back. If uh, 7% of the investors want to redeem their assets. The limit is 5%. Everybody gets back five sevenths. These aren't draconian uh, limits here. It's, this is, this is, these are private loans with no market. And so if everybody wants their money back, that's just not possible. Correct. Yeah. And, and so if you think about the, the, the reason why people are interested in investing in private credit is because the return of private credit is higher than that of, uh, of public credit, right? Well, and why is that? There are two reasons why you would expect there to be a premium. One has to do with this liquidity aspect, right? In a bond, it can be publicly traded. It's, you know, you get compensated for, in essence, being locked up for some period of time. So that's the liquidity premium. But the other big one is that for private credit, you can't go out and invest in private credit. You don't even know where the credits are. Bonds you can invest in easily, right? You just go and you, you know you look on Bloomberg and you can find the bond that you want to invest in. Private credits need to be originated, and so we call that the sourcing premium or origination premium. You get compensated for actually finding the underlying borrower, structuring the loan, you know, monitoring the loan, processing the payments. So you're really investing in a lending business to some extent. So dumb question here, but the, the companies that are borrowing money, why are they deciding to borrow money instead just to sell some of their equity? The answer is pretty simple. Uh, if you can borrow at less than what you think your cost of capital is, you will always borrow, right? Look, uh, I'll give you an example of the things that we tend to lend on. The private credit space is really composed of, we like to think of it as four different segments. Private credit can be cash flow-based lending or asset-based lending, and it can be to large companies or it can be to small companies. So think of it as four quadrants. Cash flow-based lending basically means I'm lending you money and the repayment is predicated upon you being able to meet your interest payments. And so the, the typical way that you underwrite that is through some cash flow multiple Right where you make sure that the interest payments are only a fraction of what your, your cash flow is. Asset-based lending is different in that for asset-based lending, you actually require collateral. For example, you might have aircraft as collateral, you might have cars as collateral. In, in our case, you might have real estate as collateral, you might have mining as interest as collateral, you might have equipment, inventory. Basically, you have something tangible. So when a loan gets in trouble, in one case, 
you basically need to work out some sort of a restructuring of the loan if you're if it's a cash flow based loan. For asset based loans, you actually have the real collateral there. So if if things really go wrong, you can tap the collateral for repayment. So so that is is that your niche, the asset backed market? Yes. So we we focus on the asset based mon- uh, market. We focus on asset based lending because of these repayment characteristics. Uh, the other thing to know about the asset-based market is typically the kinds of loans that I was talking about for equipment, inventory, or receivables is another a big one. They are really working capital loans. So if you are a, a mining company that has to drill something, you know the deposits are there, but you need to invest in the project to drill. You have a rel- very short duration loan that covers that project. That's a typical asset-based uh, loan. Another example would be uh, for real estate, suppose you're a real estate developer and you're doing a project where you have, you're trying to buy the land and you're going to go through a permitting process that might take 12 to 18 months before you can actually get a real construction loan. So there's a period where you get some bridge loan financing, and that's the kind of thing that we would be investing in. I'm curious about the, the rates, the interest rates that investors receive or that lenders demand for these type of loans. I guess interest rates are gravity, whether it be Fed funds or the 10-year. Obviously, these things have to trade off uh, on a spread like every other or like publicly traded bonds. Can you just talk about how that works uh, in your world? Yeah. Loans can either be fixed fixed rate or floating rate. Many of the loans in the space are floating rate. They can be SOFR plus six, SOFR plus seven. I mean, we're talking about you know very nice spreads over uh, you know over the risk free rate and in some cases if it's more of a complicated story uh, the the coupons and the yields can be in the mid teens so not you know not every loan is uh, is a mid teens loan but these days low to mid teens is completely normal in the market segment where we play and how much does this market follow the general marketplace of interest where they're talking about credit space or high yield or treasury bonds, is there some sort of spread that you're following there or is it more idiosyncratic than that depending on the the asset or the lender or that sort of thing? Yeah. So this is one of the things about private credit that really is attractive uh, to financial advisors. Private credit does not mark to market with the same velocity as bonds. Of course, private credit is affected by interest rates in the, uh, you know, in the longer term, but think about the difference between investing in real estate and your own house versus the REIT market, right? The REIT market, God, those rates can be jumping up and down uh, on a uh, you know on a daily basis and can can be quite volatile. I think what we all know is if you're trying to sell uh, an illiquid asset like like your home, you have an idea of prices in the neighborhood moving up gradually or moving down gradually. But it's a very slow-moving, smooth process. You certainly don't reprice your house every day that uh, you know that market rates move around. So the same thing is true for private credit. Over time, it is susceptible to uh, um, to markups or markdowns based on rates. But it's a very slow-moving uh, adjustment, and so the volatility for private credit is just a fraction of what it is for public. So I think it's your, I don't know if it's your former boss or the head of your former firm, Cliff Asnes, has spilled a lot of ink about this and he called it like volatility laundering. Do you even care? Because obviously you're right, there, there's less volatility, but if it's not being marked is that it's like Schrodinger's cat kind of deal. Does that even matter? Do you think because there's more of a lockup that 
that's it's like out of sight, out of mind for your investors, and it doesn't really matter. Because I, I can see it both ways. It seems like the fact that this this these funds are liquid and they're locked up longer, it it doesn't really matter because they're not trading on a minute to minute or daily basis. But how do you how do you think of the volatility effect of this space? Well, I I, I won't pick a pick a fight with uh, with Cliff on this uh, podcast. We'll take that up uh, <laughs> uh, separately. No, uh, it's a topic that AQR has written about a lot, and Cliff has been has written about it, particularly in the context of private equity. Right. Oh, you're not you're not in his crosshairs yet. Just wait. <laughs> yeah, after this podcast, I'm, I'm sure I'll be getting a, a getting a call. But uh, in the case of of private credit, really, it's a question of um, those are much much shorter duration assets, right? They're three year, four year uh, duration assets. And um, what I was saying in terms of how fast they they move, they do get marked to market. It's just that the movement is slower. And this is not a fictitious thing. It's just I use the housing analogy. They just don't move on a daily basis in terms of the the negotiation between two private parties. I don't know if Cliff has said this exactly, but wouldn't it stand to reason that behaviorally investors would be willing to pay for that volatility laundering, as he calls it, because it's very nice to not see the prices jump around on the screen every day. So that illiquidity premium is there any danger of that turning into a discount that investors would happily pay for the comfort of not being marked and therefore they're not going to get the returns that they did in the past? I honestly don't think that's the case. Remember that the supply demand dynamics on that uh, are really, the rates are, are determined between the supply of the lender and the borrower, right? Those are the supply and demand dynamics. That's one part of the market. And then there's the question of uh, the investor giving money to the lender, right? So the, the lending platform stands between the borrower and uh, on the one on one side and the investor on the on the other side. Actually, I'm, I'm going to tell you something that uh, that relates to uh, to Cliff. In addition to writing about volatility uh, laundering, he had a piece on um, pet peeves uh, many years ago. One of his best. Uh, yes, one one of, one of the many classics. Uh, and it talked about uh, also the question of laddered portfolios versus uh, you know bonds, individual bonds versus bond funds. Correct, individual bonds versus bond funds. And um, uh, you know, Cliff will jump up and down and say, well, academically, uh, you know, the the bond that you have in your that you hold in your bro- brokerage statement, in theory, it should be marked up or down every day, right? The reality is. It is not marked up or down on your brokerage statement every day. And investors feel better about not seeing that movement. Now, if you had to sell it during the holding period, of course, the the mark to market would be what would apply. But you need to think about um, this marking also in the context of what is your holding horizon, right? If you know that you are going to own this bond, or you are uh, committed somehow to owning something for five years, then you don't really much care about the volatility in between. Is that typically the holding period you tell for your clients? And it, it sounds like to me, you said this is a, an attractive asset class for advisors. Is that who most of your clients are? Yeah, we we uh, our fund is only distributed through advisors, um, basically RAs, private banks, and uh, family offices. Okay. And, and you typically tell them, listen, this is a three to five year asset class, not something you're holding for six months or 12 months or whatever? Yeah. I, I think if you're investing in this, you, you, you should not be thinking about this as something that you move in and out of on a, um, 
you know, there's a tendency a lot of times to saying, well, you know, we're going to rebalance the portfolio and tweak it around the edges and we're going to allocate a little bit more here or there. No, this needs to be sized in such a, such a manner that you can say, this can be a permanent allocation in my portfolio. If it goes up a little bit, the percentage or so in value or not, we're not going to, it's not going to be that big a number that I would need to touch it and rebalance it. So looking at a chart of the cumulative performance since inception, there is no denying that this is a much smoother ride than anything that is publicly traded. We've been through that already. So my question is, where do the actual daily marks come from? Because of course the loans don't trade. So I'm just ignorant to that. I, I honestly don't know. How, how, how does the price get set on a daily basis if somebody's looking to buy either today versus a month from now versus two months from now? Where do those marks come from? Okay, so that's a two-part answer. Uh, we are structured as a fund of funds, and we get a monthly statement from each of the underlying funds. Uh, and each one of these funds has its own valuation policy uh, that takes into account changes in yield or any potential defaults or changes in the overall market. And then our fund takes these monthly statements, and that's how we value the loans uh, on a monthly basis. For the in-between days, we have a fair value process that interpolates on a daily basis between those month ends. What does this look like? Is this a concentrated portfolio to try to spread your bets, leg into positions, take big positions, whatever? How, do, how does that whole process work? Yeah, so we have uh, about 570 positions, uh, underlying positions within, uh, within our portfolio, originated from 15 different lending platforms. So we select managers. Um, that have expertise in certain market segments. I think I mentioned uh, mining as one, and I mentioned litigation finance as another, real estate bridge loans uh, uh, would be a third. Um, so what we do is we don't necessarily think about diversifying across geographies, for example. What we do is we try to diversify against different collateral types so, for example, you don't want to have too much of your collateral tied up to the real estate market or to the, you know, auto or, um, you know, retail or, or whatever. So you try to spread your, your collateral. And then, of course, you try to have a, a very good loan to value coverage as much as possible. So you're doing a risk return trade off on saying how safe an investment can I get relative to the yield that it's, uh, that it's providing. So when you say that you're investing through a loan platform, what exactly does that mean? We, we operate as a fund of funds. Okay, got it. So we are investing through 15 different funds, and each one of those funds is a loan origination platform. So the funds that your investors are ultimately investing in, those are the companies that are making the direct loans? Absolutely, yes. So uh, you can look on our balance sheet. You can see the names of each one of the, uh, the individual uh, lending platforms. Those are the people that are responsible for originating the loans and for doing all of the underwriting uh, and all of the processing of the loans. What does like, the default rate look like in private credit versus public credit? Right now, to the amaze of many, probably myself included, we've seen all of these rate hikes filter through the economy and yet still chugging along. You're seeing bankruptcies or, or going up, but certainly nothing dramatic. Default rates are still pretty modest. What are some of the general differences? I guess, how long of a lag does the private market operate on? Can you talk about those sort of uh, dynamics? 
Yeah, uh, I don't think that per se uh, there is any lag between public and, and private markets in terms of sus- being more or less susceptible to uh, to defaults. I think that's very much of a situation dependent uh, dependent question. As we're looking across across the market right now, defaults are definitely lower than uh, than many people expect. It's not zero, but it's it's low. In a meltdown scenario, could there be credit losses on the private credit side? Absolutely. Does it worry you at all that this is still a relatively new asset class? Or do you think that, listen, a credit cycle is a credit cycle and we're looking at the underlying holdings and loans and, and that will be what it, what it is? The, the credit cycle is what it is. Uh, the question is how much it affects you as a lender, right? And the reason why we are so excited about asset-based lending is that we don't need to spend a lot of time worrying so much about the economic cycle. We need to make sure that the collateral is still there when things go south. How are you selecting managers? What do you all look at to determine whether or not this this gives you confidence to invest? It's manager due diligence. So we look first as to whether the strategy that they're pursuing makes sense, uh, whether they have a sourcing advantage. Do they have an ecosystem where they can actually generate loans at attractive uh, rates, ideally with repeat borrowers? You look at the strength of their underwriting. You look at the loan to value of the underlying positions. You look at loan covenants. So you want to make sure that the platform that you're investing through has the kind of credit quality that you would like to to see. What sort of income are these things generating right now? How frequently is it distributed? And then part two to this question is, as you're making the investments in these loan platforms, you could get excited about the returns that you're generating in terms of interest rates, but is there also a level at which you say, mm, I don't know, like, yeah, the return sounds great, but are they going to be able to repay that loan? So I know that was like a three-part question, but if you could unpack that, please. <laughs> uh, I, I will. So actually, we, we recently wrote a piece on uh, leverage and particularly hid, hidden leverage in, in private credit. So one of the things that happens in the good times is you can sometimes lend at Let's call it for for sake of argument. Let's say you can you know lend at twelve percent, uh, and you can borrow at eight percent. You can make money on the spread, right? So you can lever up and uh, and earn an extra return. Once you start to have uh, credit defaults, the leverage can really hurt you, right? And it amplifies your your losses. So one of the things about looking at different parts of the market, if you are investing in funds that are highly levered, those are going to be much more affected by uh, by credit cycle uh, than the fund that's uh, that's unlevered. So do you, do you have some rules of thumb that you place in terms of leverage on the managers you invest in? Yeah, so we generally invest in unlevered funds. Uh, and currently, the weighted average leverage of the funds is about 9%. Uh, now, at our own fund level, we have zero leverage. The way that we feel about it is, if we're giving you a good enough yield to where you feel well compensated, relative to public markets, there's no need to take on the additional risk through leverage that might squeeze out an extra percentage point or two. So the net current yield is as of 12-1, 2023, it's 9.3%. What is net current yield and how often is it delivered to investors? So um, we currently are distributing um, one and a half, basically at a 6% annual, annual rate on a quarterly basis. At year end, there's a catch up to whatever the actual uh, return was that was earned during the year. So you have three quarters at 
you know, one and a half percent each, and then at, at the end of the year, you have a you have a larger distribution. Is that standard in the industry? I would say it, it varies. Um, some are higher, some are lower. We basically have an agreement in our you know with our board to make uh, these uh, these distributions. Is there any carry here? How do, how do the fees all work? Uh, straight fees. Um, we charge uh, a fee of 110 basis points, uh, management fee. All-in fees are 145 basis points, uh, including all of the various operating expenses. That's including the fees of the funds that you're investing in? No. Uh, that's the fees that we charge and the operating expenses of, of our fund. The underlying funds that you're investing in, some of those actually do have performance fees. Uh, and so if you look at the expense ratio uh, and published in our prospectus, uh, the quote acquired fund fees uh, can be, I think right now they're in the three and a half percent range or so. That includes, by the way, the cost of borrowing. So if one of the funds, uh, you know, uh, borrows anything, they have to pay, pay for that. But uh, these private credit lenders also want to be compensated, right? Sure. Of course. We, we are getting the net when, when I'm saying you can, you can get, you know, say 12% or so yield on a, a loan. That means that the borrower is actually paying a higher rate and the, the lending platform has already gotten paid out. of it. So from the investor's point of view, are they looking for capital appreciation or is this strictly an income play? Like what, what, what should an investor, because listen, the reality is not all advisors, not all end investors are experts far from it on, on all of the idiosyncratic risks in these markets. How should investors think about the asset class and how should they think about due diligence? Like this is an income play. Uh, what, what else should they be aware of? This is without question an income and yield uh, is the motivation to to invest in uh, in this. It's not a capital appreciation uh, investment. Uh, I think you want to invest in a strategy or a um, or a fund where you understand what the economic rationale is for why you're earning returns that are higher than public markets. Uh, so we like the idea of going into less competed segments of the market, smaller borrowers, who by virtue of being less competed, are going to be able to command higher interest rates. Uh, in terms of the due diligence, one of the things I would point out is uh, there are a number of um, credit interval funds out there uh, that actually are not really investing in private credit. They invest in what I would call the less liquid segments of the of the public markets. Uh, high yield, syndicated bank loans, CLOs, they don't have the kind of liquidity characteristics that would be good for a daily valued fund, but they're not, quote, private credit. So one of the things to look at is as you're evaluating funds is how much is actually private versus uh, versus public in terms of the portfolio. Uh, and then uh, you, you, know, you can get into the nuances of Within private credit, there's then you know, asset-based, cash, uh, cash flow-based, large, small. There's a different segments of the market. Last question for me. This is a bit of a softball. Why would somebody invest in a structure like you have with the fund of funds rather than just going uh, direct to the, the platform? Um, I'm glad you asked that question. Uh, the reason why is that if you want to invest in these kinds of uh, boutique opportunities, this, this lower end of the market, you just do not have the ability to do due diligence on a plethora of small funds. Uh, the funds that we're investing in, sometimes they have 200, 300, 400 million in assets, right? They're low, limited capacity funds. In order for you to invest in them and have a diversified portfolio, you just don't have the, the bandwidth to evaluate them individually. It's actually interesting when we're talking to advisors about our fund, 
without fail, they're going through our portfolio and they're saying, oh yeah, I know that particular lender. We've actually done some investing with them. And so they just don't have the bandwidth to do that times 15, times 20, times 30. So we have plenty of advisors who listen to the show. What do they need to do to learn more uh, if they wanted to check out your fund? Alternativefundadvisors.com. Perfect. Great. Marco, thanks for your time. Thank you. Okay, thanks again to Marco. Remember, alternativefundadvisors.com. If you're an advisor and want to learn more, email us. You do it. Animal Spirits at the compoundnews.com. Boom.